to be with you today, and I thank the Lord uh, for the opportunity to speak to you. It's also a privilege to be the director of the libraries here at the Master's College and Seminary, and I just wanted to take this opportunity to say publicly how deeply uh, appreciative I am of the way in which our administration is committed to a strong library. I work with deans and professors, or deans and presidents and boards all over this country uh, uh, selling them libraries, and I rarely see the commitment uh, to a, a, a strong library that we have here, and I really thank God for that. And I'm also very thankful for our very dedicated staff, which I know all of you interface with on a, hopefully a daily basis if you're studying there, and uh, we're very thankful for all that the Lord has done. Uh, being a uh, sometimes stuffy history professor, I just can't resist telling you one small event out of church history for openers here. But back in the third century, there was a, a movement alive in the church called the monastic movement, and there were different kind of monks who, who came about uh, in the church. Some of them were stylites who lived up on a 70-foot pillar, and they thought by living up on top of that pillar all their life and never coming down that they'd be holy. And they even built a wall around so the women couldn't get near them because they thought that would uh, make them more holy. But the story goes that there was once a, uh, a monk who lived in a monastery and he took an oath of silence. And he said at that point that he would never say any, he would only say two words every five years. And so he went into the monastery and after five years of, of quietness, he came out and reported to a senior and he was allowed to say two words. And so he said, cold food. Uh, and then he went back in and he spent uh, five more years in the monastery and he came out and he was allowed to say two more words and he said, hard beds. And then uh, he went back in for five more years and he came out and he was allowed to say two more words. He said, I quit. And uh, his Monsignor says, about time you quit. All you've done since you got here is complain. So <laughs> um, having said that, I would like to direct your thoughts in a more serious note uh, to Psalm 90. If you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 90. And what I'd like to consider this morning with you is the whole matter of the priorities in your life. The priorities in your life. Psalm 90, as you know, is not written by David. You recall it was written by Moses. Moses uh, being much older than David in the chronology of the Old Testament, and that makes Psalm 90, in all likelihood, the oldest of all of the Psalms. And so it is a psalm written by Moses. It's not the only psalm he wrote. We have others recorded back in... Um, in Deuteronomy, but it's perhaps the oldest of all the Psalms, and it's written by the man Moses who had a tremendous understanding of what life was really all about. Moses was a man who truly understood the priority of life, and what I'd like to do this morning is to focus on this Psalm and on Moses' understanding of the priority of life. And if we could come to look at our life through the same eyes that Moses looked at life, I believe we would do well and it would help us in a tremendous way. Now, just a little background on Moses. You recall back in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 4 where God came to Moses in the burning bush. And God had come to Moses in a unique way, and Moses was very uh, aware of, of God because, because God said to him, Do not come near me. He says, Remove your sandal from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And then later, as he began to call Moses to the work, and Moses reflected his frailty, God said, you tell them I am who I am, has sent you to lead the people out of Egypt. And so Moses knew God in a very intimate way. And if there's anyone who's qualified to speak on the priority of life, it's Moses. 
In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, when Stephen gives his speech, you recall that he said Moses was a man of power in both words and deeds. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 5 where uh, the writer of Hebrews looks at Moses and he said, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony to those things which were to be spoken later. And finally we come to chapter 11, the great faith chapter uh, of the book of Hebrews in verse 25 where we see that Moses was choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And so he's a very special man and he understood what it was like to, to suffer for our Lord, what it was to turn his back on sin. He knew God in an intimate way and he understood life the way it really is. Now let me ask you this morning, how do you look at life? Some of you may be a man without a plan. You know, you just kind of get blown around by, what are we going to do today? Well, what do you want to do today? Well, here's what we'll do today. And you kind of just get blown around by whatever anybody else is going to do. Some of you look at life with a little sense of urgency, a little sense of purpose. And that's very much a part of our culture. And so uh, it might be expected that, that you would have that look at life. Some tend to look at life very selfishly as to what can I get out of it or how much money can I make or, or what's in it for me. And then they view life through that mold of, of how they can succeed in life. They look at it as a big game, a selfish game. Some see life as a treadmill, and that's quite easy to do when you're in school, uh, where it's just event after event, assignment after assignment, and we work, we sleep, we work and sleep, and it's just merely a treadmill that we can't get off of. And life has little meaning and little purpose because it just seems to be so routine. Some have suffered in life and they've seen others suffered and they, they contemplate life and they try to ask why. And they can't figure out what life is all about and how to put it all together. They can't figure the, the moral code that, that explains life. Some of what Solomon tried to do in the book of Ecclesiastes where he finally came to the point where he said futility. You can't put it together, so we better just fear God. Well, there's lots of ways to look at life and what I'd like to do this morning is call you to an, a higher approach to life. To a higher approach than perhaps you've seen it now or, or certainly than the world is screaming at us in terms of how we look at life. I believe if we look at life through the eyes of Moses, we will really see life as Moses saw it. And if you really see it that way, you will not be able to live the same again. You will have to live life differently if you see it as Moses saw it. I believe it will profoundly affect us if we really understand the way Moses viewed life. So let us come to Psalm 90 and look at Moses under five headings here. And the first one is this, that Moses understood the place of God in his life. He understood the place of God in his life. He says there in verse 1, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or thou didst give birth to earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. In those two verses, we see that Moses understood where God fit in life. First of all, God was his dwelling place. It was the place where Moses resided. You know, home is very significant. It's a very significant aspect of our life. When we introduce ourselves, the first thing we usually say is our name. The second thing we, we usually say is where we're from or where we live or where we came from. And so life, be, life usually is centered in a, in, a, in a large way as to where we dwell, where we live. And in the case of Israel here, Moses was talking about a people who were almost a vagabond. They were people without a country. 
They were people who were stranded captive down in Egypt. They were people who were wandering through the desert having crossed the Red Sea. They were not people who had a home. As Moses said back in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, he said, eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. Do you remember the book of Ruth when Ruth uh, came to the point where she met face to face with Boaz and Boaz affirmed her in her commitment to reside with the Israelites? Do you remember what Boaz said to her in Ruth chapter 2, verse 12? Boaz said to Ruth, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. You see, both Moses and Boaz understood that the essence of life was to dwell in the Lord. It was to find, if you will, your home in the Lord. The world says your home is your castle, and it's quite true. If you, if you really want to find out what someone's like, try moving them. You ever do that? You know, you carry out all this stuff, and you, you little everything's falling out of the boxes, and you kind of figure out what a person's really all about when you move them. And um, because our home really reveals what we are. If we could go and, and search your home today or search your room or, or know all the things that only the Lord or your roommate knows about you, you would really begin to find out what the person's like. And the more the closer you get to the home of a person, the more closely you find out what they're really like. And the Bible says that Moses affirmed God as his home, as his dwelling place. And I wonder today if we look at God as our whole life, the closer we get to the home, the closer we see what the person's really like. Do we see God as our home, as, as really the closest focal point of our life? You see, that's how Moses looked at life. You see, how strong is our commitment to our God, I think Moses is saying. Do we live for him right to the point where we reside in his home? You see, he says... This is our dwelling place. And you know what he says from all generations, from this generation to the next generation to the next generation. We're talking about a sustained residence in the house of the Lord. In your lifetime, you'll see perhaps three or four generations of God privileges you to live out your life. And what he's saying, Moses said, as he looked over the various generations, God was our dwelling place. We didn't have a land. We were just moving here and moving there all throughout Israel, but we dwelled in God. And child of God, that's where we need to dwell. We're here now, but soon we'll be someplace else and the Lord may take us to a, a very far place. Having grown up in Pennsylvania, I never dreamed I'd live in California and I, I never dreamed I'd be traveling to the Soviet Union or other places. But, but the point is, it's not the geography. It is where we dwell. We must dwell in the Lord. Now Moses not only knew that God was his dwelling place, but he also knew that God was his creator in verse 2. He says, Or thou didst give birth to earth and the world. He affirmed the creation of the planet by God. Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. You know, the doctrine of creation is one of the most significant doctrines in all of the Word of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, you recall when God describes the lost man who has turned creation and the doctrine of creation around literally. You remember what he says? He says that the unbeliever worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They've got the creature-creator uh, situation backwards. Instead of worshiping the creature, instead of worshiping the creator, they turned around and made themselves the creator, and they worshiped the creature. As one writer said, they forgot their creatureness. And they go and they try to be God. And that's the problem with the lost man. It's not that he needs to be convinced with evidences. His difficulty is he won't bow down to God. That's a pride issue. And Moses understood 
that God was at the very heart of all that, that was around him. God was his creator. And I believe that Christians have sold out way too much more than they realize to sell out the theistic evolution. They see creation as a small thing, but actually creation is a very large thing. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and we don't have time to do it now. But we find that God made everything in Genesis 1, 31, and he, as he looked at it, he saw that it was good. He saw that every bit of it was good. And we also find that as God made it, he established an order for all things. In Genesis 2, 2, we see the principle of one day and seven, the principle of rest. In Genesis 2, 18, we see the role of men and women and their relationship to one another and the doctrine of subjection. We see in Genesis 2.24 the whole idea of the institution of marriage and leaving and cleaving and all that dynamic. In Genesis 1.28 we see that man was to subdue the earth and we understand the relationship of man to the world around him. You see, God not only created us, but he also created an order, a creation order, if you will. And that is basic to all our thinking. And if we try to live our life without affirming God as creator or continue to recognize him as creator, we do ourselves a great injustice. We will eventually come in verse 11 and 12 to the whole matter of wisdom. But let me say this, that wisdom has much to do, and understanding wisdom has much to do with the creation. Because not, God not only created us, but he also created a creation order, a way in which he wanted us to live. And the whole matter of coming to understand life the way it really is or coming to be wise or to have wisdom is to go back and understand the way God wanted us to live in the creation that he made us. And so for Moses to affirm that God was his creator, the creator of the world, that he was the everlasting God, is for Moses to correctly position himself under that God and for Moses to recognize that there is an order to the creation. And you and I must come to understand wisdom, which as you know grows out of the fear of God in which we would begin to understand once again how God wanted us to live on this planet, how he wanted us to think, how he made us to think, so that the way that we live would go the same way as the way he intended us uh, to live. And that all is all caught up in this doctrine of creation, which is very, very important. And so Moses understood then the relationship of God in his life. God was his dwelling place, and God was his creator. Now, secondly, Moses understood the true nature of physical life in verses 3 down through 6. And these are very arresting thoughts. Moses says, Thou hast turned man back to dust. Thou dost say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. Thou hast swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. Now let's just take a look at those verses. Because I believe they reveal that Moses understood the true nature of our physical life. This, this body that we possess and this, this earth that we live in. Four things that we see here. First of all, we see the, the reality of life in Moses' thinking. He says, Thou didst turn man back to dust. Moses was very aware of life and death. You remember that Moses lived during a time in Israel's history where over a million point two people died in 38 years because God told a whole generation they were not going to go into the land. And so the Bible tells us that a million and a, a million and two or 120 or a million point two people died in 38 years. That's some 87 deaths a day. That's three to four deaths an hour within the camp. So Moses was very well aware of death. He saw it all around him. 
just like we do. And Moses, in a, in a real sense, knew the, fr the frailty of life. And so when he says, Thou turn man back to dust, he saw that hour by hour by hour. He saw people around him dying. You know, we live in a society that wants to suppress death at every level. Some years ago, Joseph Mitford wrote a book called The American Way of Death. And it, you ought to pull that down and read it sometime and just see the way in which America camouflages the whole idea of death with the ceremony at the church, not at the gravesite. You know, all the flowers and all the hoopla and everything but a focus on what is really going on to the point where you can go through life and deliberately ignore the fundamental reality of death. You just deliberately ignore it. We live for the living. We don't think about dying. Just put that out of your mind. And along with that, I think James gives us a very interesting thought in James chapter 4 where he talks about those who are preoccupied with this life. And those that are preoccupied with going here and going there and making money and all of that. And he says in James chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go and into such and shall go to such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know that your life is like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you might say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. To try to camouflage life from reality that it's but a vapor it is wrong. It is not the way we should look at our life. You see, so many in our world are preoccupied with things. Child of God, our lives are but a vapor, as James says. And we must be preoccupied with the reality of life and death. Not that we would be morbid, but we would be honest. We would be realists. As Moses said, thou dost turn back into dust. We need to look at life as a privilege to live today because tomorrow we will meet our maker. You see, He says... Thou didst say, Return, O children of men. And so he understood the reality of life. Now, secondly, he understood the brevity of life. And there's, there's four analogies in verses 4 through 6 in which Moses gives us this reality in very, un, very clear terms. He says, For a thousand years in thy sight are but a day. One thousand years in God's sight equals one day. That means if you live 70 years, you reduce that down mathematically, that's two and a half hours. So when God looks at your life and he looks at my life, he sees the whole thing going through in two and a half hours. That's quick. That's quick. You see, Moses is talking about the value of a day that every moment has to count because as God sees it, poof, and it's gone. Look at the second analogy. He says, they are, are, they are and it's looking back to the thousand years, uh, as yesterday when it passed, or as a watch in the night. The watch in the night was 180 minutes long or three hours long. He says here that a thousand years is as a watch in the night. You do a little mathematics, that makes a hundred year life 18 minutes. 18 minutes. As God would look at our life. You see, what I think he's saying here is the preciousness of life. The preciousness of the moments that God has given us today to come into this chapel or go to, this, go to these classes or be in the school, or whatever it might be. Life is of such great worth, if you look at it biblically. If you look at it in the world, it's, it's almost of no worth, you see. But if, from God's point of view, it's of such great worth. Look at the third analogy. 
He says there in verse 5, Thou hast swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. The picture is much like what happened recently in the flooding that occurred here in which a, a mudslide came down the side of a mountain not so far from here and went into a house and the mud covered up the people while they were sleeping and snuffed out their life. Before they could even wake up and think about it, they were gone. The picture is a flood that comes when someone is sleeping and before you can even realize it, everything is swept away. If you go down to the beach and you draw on the sand or you make a little sand castle on the sand, it's there until the tide comes in. And if you stand there and watch, within about 15 minutes the tide will come and that flood of water will come over that thing and completely reduce it back to level sand. And I can remember the last time staying on the beach and we worked for three or four hours to build a sandcastle with my kids and in 15 minutes the waves had come rushing in and they had reduced that thing to level sand. And I believe what he's saying is generations pass. As a flood comes, 15 minutes, just a short period of time in which the wave comes in one pattern and then it comes a different pattern. The patterns are never the same. And they come over and they sweep in different ways. You see, life is so brief. The lost man looks at that and he gets discouraged. He says, well, then what's, what do I do? This is worthless, you see. So then some of them want to go out and make a name for themselves. They want to quick capture the moment. But Moses looks at this to draw his heart to wisdom. If life is so short, if life is so brief, then it should draw his heart to wisdom, which we'll see in verse 12. Now look at the last analogy there in the end of verse 5 and verse 6. He said, In the morning they are like grass, which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward the evening it fades and withers away. He's looking here at grass and flowers that would come up in the morning and bloom, and then they would live during the day, and by the end of the day they would begin to fade. He's talking about the difference of eight hours here between the morning when they bloom and the evening when they fade. Having grown up on a farm, I can't think of anything more futile than cutting grass. I mean, you, you cut it, and two weeks later, you got to cut it again. And uh, in some weeks, you had to cut it twice. And it keeps growing and dying and cutting and dying, and on and on it goes. It just cycles through. And he says, life is a, like, a lot like that whole idea of something that quickly comes and quickly goes like the flower, like the grass. You see, the days of our life are a very valuable gift from God. And I believe that's what Moses is saying in these analogies, that he really understood that time was not to be wasted. Days were not to be wasted. And I would challenge you to learn the value of a day. If life is so short, if from God's perspective, the whole thing is gone in 18 minutes, in, two, in several hours or just a short period of time, you see, we need to live like a man who really only has two hours left to live, who really only has 18, year, 18 more minutes to live, what would you do with those precious few moments if you knew the end was near? It would, it would challenge your thought right down to the very gut of your, of your being. It would make you answer differently. It would make you live differently. We need to live as if we just have a few short minutes to build that castle in the sand, which will, which will be wiped away, you see, and so we better make that castle count. We better make that building count. We better make those minutes count and live like the man who just has a short time left to live. Well, Moses understood a right relationship to his God and he also understood the whole matter of physical life. But thirdly, Moses understood God's hatred for sin, which has a very significant being or part of this whole thing. In verses 7 down through 11, he says, For we have... For we have been consumed by thy anger, 
and by thy wrath we have been dismayed. Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sin in the light of thy presence, for all our days have declined in thy fury, and we have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain seventy years, and if due to strength, eighty years. Yet through pride is not labor, but, but through pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of thine anger and thy fury according to the fear that is due thee? Now go back and think about Israel again, because Israel uh, was really in Moses' focus here. If you notice, he's using verbs that are in the past tense. He's using personal things. He says, we have been consumed. He goes back to his time in the wilderness where he realizes how the people had sinned and even he had hit the rock and been denied entrance into the land himself, as you recall. And what he is saying here is that he understood the wrath of God poured out on people who sinned. He understood what God would do if you turned your back on him. And that is all part of looking at life in a right way, that you can't play fast and loose with sin. You see, he says that through thy wrath we have been dismayed. It has got our attention. And then verse 8, where he says that he understands that God has knowledge of secret sins. He says, but thou hast placed our iniquities before thee. And the, the word here in the, in the last part of verse 8 is the idea of the sun or the light of God. And it's the same word in Genesis chapter 1 where it talks about the light of the sun shining. The light of the sun of God is shining down on our secret sins. That God knows the wickedness of the human heart. That's what Moses is saying. He knows every evil, wicked sin in our hearts. And there's nothing that we do that we get away with. God knows it all. And Moses understood then in a correct way how much God hated sin in verse 7 and how much he knew it and would judge it. Look at verse 9 where he understands the effects of sin in our life. Verse 9, he says, For all our days have declined in thy fury. Literally what he's saying is that because of the sin in our life we die. Now he's not saying you did something and therefore you die. I think he's looking back to Adam in the garden and the Bible tells us when Adam ate, when Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge, or, or, or ate of the, of, the, um, of the tree there in, in the garden that, that what they really did was bring death upon themselves. The physical death took some time to catch up but the spiritual death occurred right away. And the reason we die physically eventually goes back to the fact that we are born in sin and our bodies decay and they die. And he's talking here about the downward progression of life in the sense that we will die not because of a particular sin, but we will die because we're sinners. You see? And he says literally we finish our years like a sigh. And if you look at that word a little bit in the, in the original, the idea is, is like... Well, you don't see it so much here in the West, but we saw it a lot in the East where, where it got so cold that, that you would breathe your breath and you could see your breath. And it would come for maybe a, a 20 seconds out in front and you could see the breath and it would be gone. And the idea was that it would be a quick breath that would be given and you could see and then it would dissipate. We see the same word in Job chapter 37 and verse 2 where it means to think aloud. It's as if you just uh, gave a thought quickly that, you, that came to your mind and you said it. It's the idea of the breath in the winter or as a fleeting thought that popped in your mind so you said it and it was gone. He says that's how life is. It is fleeting. It is so quick. And because of what sin has done, we, we find our bodies getting old before we know it. We find ourselves having to have operations and, and, and deteriorating. 
into the ground where we eventually will go. And he says there in verse 10, not only that aspect, but also the futility of life. He says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Now he gets really specific. He says, most people will live 70 years. And if due, he says, to strength, perhaps 80 years, if you're strong. He says, maybe you'll live 80 years. And then he talks about labor. He says, much of our life is given over to labor and to sorrow, to working hard and to and experiencing grief. And again, I made mention before of Solomon and how he undertook to try to figure out the moral order of life and look at all of his labor and try to figure it all out. And he finally comes back to fear God and keep his commandments. All we can do is, is obey a God that we cannot really understand in the end why life is the way it is. But he says here that we live 70 to 80 years and then we soon fly away. And then we'll be gone. Like a little bird, we'll just fly away. They come so quickly, they eat, and you blink, and they're gone. And that is Moses' understanding of life. Now, we'll come back to that, but just one more thing in this thought here in verse 11, where Moses looks at the power of sin to destroy. In verse 11, he says, Who understands the power of thy anger? Who really understands how angry God gets with sin and how much he must deal with that sin? And thy fury, according to the fear that is due thee. You know, back in Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses gave us his own commentary on that verse. In Deuteronomy 4, and it's also in Deuteronomy 9, but Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, Moses says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Also in Deuteronomy 9, 3, that our God is a consuming fire, that God must deal with sin. He cannot tolerate it. And it's interesting that he couples the shortness of life with the fact that God cannot tolerate sin. And he puts those two thoughts together in an understanding of what life is really about. He says, Moses understood the power of God's anger. Sin maims. Sin ruins. Sin shortens lives. Sin scars lives sometimes in such a way that it can never be undone. You see... And Moses understood all of that. And having understood all of that, it brings him to verse 12, where we come to see that Moses understood the value of setting biblical goals in life. And this is the thought that I want to leave with you this morning in verse 12, is, is how Moses pulled this all together as he understood the relationship of his God in creation and, and in world order. As he understood the brevity of life, as he understood the place of sin, we come to verse 12 where he says, So teach us to number our days that we to teach us to number our days that we may present to thee a heart of wisdom we see three things in this verse that I believe are very practical that we can grasp in our life if we're going to understand life like Moses saw it first of all the action of numbering our days if you live 70 years or perhaps 80 years if you live 70 years that's 25,000 days okay just multiply it out 25,000 days by the time you reach the age of 25, and you're not, most of you aren't there yet, but you'll be there soon, you've got 16,000 left. You've dropped from 25,000 to 16,000 by the time you get to age 25. By the time you get to age 32, the age in which Jesus was at the height of his ministry, you've got 13,800 days left. By the time you get to age 45, you've got 9,000 days left. By the time you get to age 50, you have 7,000 days left. I'll quit there. Well... I was talking to my father this morning who's, who's uh, going in for some um, uh, tests. He may have some form of a 
of, of cancer and he's 64 years old. And I said, Dad, you figure that out. You've got 200 or 2,000 days left if you live to 70, you see. And as you look at life from the vantage point of Moses, life is ticking by day by day. There is not an unlimited number of days in our life, you see. It's ticking down, you see. And we must then make every day count. He says, teach us to number our days. I think we've got to get very practical with that. I think that means we need to set some deadlines as to when we're going to graduate, you know. And, uh, some of you don't want to, you shouldn't be here forever. <laughs> you see, I think we need to set some days about, or some goals, some, some ten-year plans, some five-year plans. And this is not an IBM book on how to be successful. This is, this is Moses talking about the brevity of life, you see. And what he's saying here is that we need to set goals in our life. Set goals for every day of our life. To get up and say, this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. To see our life as something that is coming before us and we must make those days count for the Lord. Figure out how many days you have left. Okay, If God allows you to live to 70. Don't presume for the next, the next 10 years. Look at 70. And figure out how many days you have left. And begin to set some goals in your life. You know, I study history. I teach history. And I I'm all the time dealing with the lives of men whose days are finished and they've been buried and their life is done. And I'm teaching that to, to students who, whose life in, in the providence of God has not yet been written, whose history can be altered. You think about that for a minute. When you study the history of Moses, not one thing in his life can be altered because the history is done, it's been written, the book has been closed, the pen is put down. But in your life, the, the pen is still in your hand there can still be some effect as to how the history of your life will be written. You see, and that means that we have within us, by the grace of God, the power to write that history in such a way that God will be pleased. And so let us learn, let us pray to our God to teach us to number our days. That ought to be our prayer. So there's an action there. Look at the product. That we may present to thee a heart of wisdom. There's a goal in this numbering of the days. And that has to do with the whole subject of wisdom. In Proverbs chapter 1, we read about wisdom and how God set about through Solomon to teach wisdom uh, to you and I. And he says in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And in other parallel passages, he says it's the beginning of wisdom. And then he says in one seven, fools despise wisdom and instruction. There's a triad between knowledge, wisdom, and instruction, and none of it comes till you fear the Lord. None of it even begins till you fear the Lord. So back behind what Moses is saying, and Moses often called upon the people to fear the Lord in the books of Deuteronomy and other places, is to fear God. That is to humble yourself before God and submit to His authority in your life. And having done that, he says, he says you, you number your days so that you can come upon wisdom. The word wisdom, if you look it up in the, in the Hebrew, is, is the word for skill. And it's used in many, many contexts in the Old Testament. It has the idea of, of skillfully using wood to put together and make a beautiful tabernacle. It has to do with skillfully weaving cloth into clothing. It has to do with skillfully beating a piece of metal until it turns into a beautiful oil lamp. And the whole idea was a skill that one would develop. And wisdom then became the skill of living your life according to the creation order which God intended it to live. Well, that implies that we take our days and delve into the Word of God. That implies that we take the Word of God and apply it to our life so we would live wisely, so that we would live skillfully. And the idea of all this is if we number our days, that we would learn in our lifetime some measure of wisdom so that when we look back over our life at the end of our life, we see a beauty or a pattern. There's a ring about our life 
of, of some type of order. If you look back over the first 12,000 days of your life, okay, if, if you don't see the pattern that you want to see, if you don't see the wisdom in the decision-making and the wisdom in the choices, the wisdom in the actions that ought to be, then, then we need to reevaluate the whole process and to begin to number our days that we would apply our hearts to wisdom. If, if, if going to school requires a level of application and hard work and study, then certainly wisdom does too. We see that in Proverbs where he says, I, I wrote you these picky, difficult to understand Proverbs so you would, so you would work at trying to understand them so you could figure out wisdom. You see. And so God wants us to make this the greatest effort of our life. So there's an action here of numbering our days as a product of skillful living, wise living. That's not going to be something that's given to us. That's not something that, that we're just going to get because we go to the school or go to a church. That's going to come as you pursue God, as you fear Him that our hearts would become wise. You see, in the Old Testament, there is the, there's the law that the priests read out of constantly. And there was the prophecies which were given that the prophets would stand up and prophesy. And then there is the wisdom or the counsel. There is the taking of the law and the taking of the prophecies and weaving that together in such a way that you translate that into the nitty-gritty of life. Taking all of that knowledge and all of that prophecy and turning it into wise living. And that's called a skill. That's a skill to do that. And he says if you number your days, then we can begin to get that skill of living that kind of life. Now, there's also the result down in verse 17, if I can jump ahead. Having numbered our days, apply our hearts to wisdom. He says in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and do confirm us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the works of of our hands. Every one of us would want the works that we do to be established. We don't want to do them for naught. We don't want to uh, live our life and having said the things we've said or taught the things we've taught or raised the children we've raised for naught or for nothing. We don't all want it to be just a, uh, something that's gone in the sand when the ocean comes in. You see, Moses said that he desired that his works would be confirmed. He would take the works of our hands, whatever we would use our hands to do today, and confirm them. And I would suggest to you that the confirmation of our works, the, the, the worth that would come to our works, comes from numbing your days and applying your heart to wisdom. That's what confirms our works. And I believe it's in the heart of every one of us. It's in my heart. I'm sure it's in every one of your hearts that your works would be affirmed or confirmed. There's nothing more we desire, and that's not to be praised, but to be affirmed. But someone would think that we are really doing a good job, that we're really making a contribution, that what we're doing is really worthwhile. You want it to be worthwhile? Number your days and apply your heart to wisdom. And God will confirm or affirm your works. Now let's come quickly to one more point here in verses 13 down through 17. And that's that Moses understood the prayer of a righteous man. Having said all that, having made this goal, look at his prayer briefly in verses 13 to 17. First of all, we see... In verse 13, the prayer of an anxious heart. He says, Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? Moses, way back there in the oldest psalm, had some sense of the Lord's return. He had some sense of the, of the correct order of the way life would be. He says, Do return, how long will it be, and be sorry for thy servants? In verse 14, we see he had a satisfied heart. He says, O oh, satisfy us in the morning with thy loving kindness." that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. You see, he wanted to be satisfied. You want to be satisfied? 
Do you want to feel like life has offered you enough? This man could be satisfied because he understood life the way he really was and he focused on the right things. And he could get up in the morning and be satisfied with the loving kindness of God. He could sing for joy and be glad. How many of his days? All his days. That's the same Moses who back in the earlier verses there talked about the labor and the sorrow of life and how difficult life was. He's the same one who says he can sing and be glad. There's a, there's a different kind of happiness and rejoicing that comes when you've done the right thing. When you focus the right way, you see. And sure it's hard. And sure there's grief. But he says we can have joy and be glad all our days. Then we see in his prayer, rejoicing heart, in verse 15. He says, make us glad according to the ways thou hast afflicted us. And the years we have seen evil. As we even go through affliction, he says, make us glad. There's something fundamentally good about affliction. About hard times. Our own difficulties here at the college have been good for us because they've made us look financially to our Lord, you see. Whatever affliction comes into our life, that is good for us. He says, make us glad. They thank the Lord. When you look this way, you thank the Lord even for affliction. And then a humble heart in verse 16. He said, let thy work appear to thy servants and thy majesty to their children. Moses, that great leader of the children of Israel, when it came down to putting a word on his life, what did he call himself? A servant. He calls himself a servant. And he says here, let thy works appear to thy servants. We stand in awe of thee, Lord. We want to see you work, Lord. And I would suggest to you that a proper view of life and a proper prayer for life never gets by the fact that anything we are and anything the Lord gave us and anything we accomplish and any money we make is all a gift from God. And we better keep it that way and never move from that or we'll lose it all. And then one more thing, the confirmed heart there in verse 17. He says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and do confirm for us the works of our hands. As he prayed, he wanted the confirmation of God which would come out of a humble heart, out of a rejoicing heart, out of a satisfied heart. Let me close this morning by taking you to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15. Paul gives us a very arresting passage of Scripture here. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me just read you these verses and just let the, the words of the verses sink into your heart. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's works will become evident. For the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of every man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains it shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. We need to understand life as Moses understood it. We need to count our days. We need to pray that the Lord would help us to get very, very intensely practical about this thing that we could apply our hearts to wisdom. Shall we pray?
Our Father, we thank you for this precious psalm. We thank you for this dear man of God who many years ago understood the true reality of life. And Lord, there are so many forces pulling on these students, pulling on us today. So many people vying for a, trying to teach us a worldview and a way to look at life. And Lord, I pray you would arrest our hearts with the words of Moses. I pray we would come to see life in the true balanced way that Moses saw it. Help us to see you as our God, as our dwelling place, as our creator. Help us, Lord, to, to see the, prevail, the, the shortness of life, the brevity of life. Help us to see the relationship of sin and how it destroys life. And then, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a life of wisdom, that our works would be confirmed. Lord, we do not desire any glory of ourselves, but we desire that what we do would remain as a testimony to you long after the flood comes in and the ocean has passed and men remember it no more. Thank you for this precious time. We pray your blessing on each one of these precious lives. And we pray that you would strengthen them in your truth this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name.